We're continuing our series through the book of Acts on Sunday afternoons, and today we have made it to chapter 18, where we will be concluding Paul's second missionary journey. So we've seen in chapter 16, where Paul went to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, that would be in South Galatia, before he headed to Philippi over in Macedonia. And then in chapter 17, we saw him go to Thessalonica and Berea, also in Macedonia. And then he moved on from there to Athens in Achaia. And so now in chapter 18, we'll see him spend some time in Corinth, which is also in Achaia, before making a brief stop in Ephesus and concluding his journey in Antioch. So there will be a lot of traveling Um, But most of it is actually covered very quickly, and most of our time this afternoon will be spent in Corinth. So, with all that in mind, let's go ahead and look at the very beginning of this chapter, Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul goes to Corinth, and that's where he finds Aquila and Priscilla. It wasn't too long ago that I preached a sermon about Aquila and Priscilla, and we looked at all of the references to them in all the different parts of the New Testament. But they are actually mentioned six times in four different books of the New Testament, which documents a span of about 15 years. And so Aquila and Priscilla proved to be very faithful workers, but this is the introduction to them here in Acts 18. They are a Jewish couple who lived in Rome, and the text tells us that they left because Claudius, who was the Roman emperor, issued a decree for all non-Roman citizen Jews to leave. And this is actually very well supported by secular history. Um, We know from secular sources that this would have been about 49 or 50 AD. There was a Roman writer named Suetonius who alluded to this. And he wrote that the expulsion was because the Jewish people were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus. And most historians believe that to be a very early reference to Christ. And so that would explain why when Paul finds Aquila and Priscilla, these Jews who have moved from Rome to Corinth, that they appear to already be Christians. It seems that the gospel has already made it to Rome, and that is why uh, the emperor has expelled the Jews. But they end up intersecting with Paul because they have the same trade that he does, They are tent makers. It might be more accurate to describe them as leather workers. Tent makers would do more than just make tents. They would make all kinds of things with leather products. And this is the work that brings Paul together with Aquila and Priscilla. But you know as well as I do that that is not really what they bonded over. You know, I can hardly imagine Paul sitting back with Aquila and Priscilla and just brainstorming about all of their innovative tent ideas and how they're going to start a tent business that takes over the world and, you know, sell their shares on the 
you know, stock market and all of that. Their trade was merely incidental to what was much more important to them. And where they truly bonded was not over their tent making, but it was over their love for the gospel and their desire to bring it to more and more people. And we see the beginning of this beautiful relationship here in Corinth. Now, Corinth was the largest city in Greece at this time. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. It was a Roman colony. And it was also a city that had developed quite a reputation. We have a few cities like that in our country that when people talk about them, they imagine the worst aspects of them. But since the days of the Greek Empire, Corinth had been a port city. It was a place where people would come and stop when they were sailing uh, on merchant vessels and to trade. And so you can imagine the kind of entertainment that was popular among sailors who stopped in Corinth. In fact, there was a, a popular reference. If you called somebody a Corinthian, that was to imply that they had loose morals. So that wouldn't probably be the most complimentary thing to hear if somebody called you a Corinthian. And so for all of those reasons, it's a very interesting choice for Paul to go there. I think that if we really appreciated the kind of reputation that Corinth had, when we read about Paul's decision to go to Corinth, it would be a lot more shocking to us. We would think, why on earth would Paul go there? Why would he go to a place that was known for such immorality? Why would he go to a place that was so wicked and worldly? And the answer is, because that's the kind of place that needs the gospel. You can imagine the reactions that I got when I told my friends and family in Alabama that I wanted to go preach the gospel in San Francisco. And I have to say, I appealed a lot to Acts chapter 18 to say, this is the kind of decision that I want to make. Corinth was a place that definitely needed the gospel. San Francisco is a place that definitely needs the gospel. And Lawrenceville is also a place that definitely needs the gospel. And so we need to be thinking like Paul. Not simply going to the places that are the most comfortable, but challenging ourselves to go where the gospel is most needed. Whether that's within our town here or even somewhere else. So let's see what Paul does next. In verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, you might remember from chapter 17 that Silas and Timothy had remained in Macedonia 
when Paul went on to Athens. And now they all reunite here in Corinth. This is kind of like the grand reunion. And when Silas and Timothy show up, it seems like Paul has already made himself busy. He's about 90% of the way to getting himself kicked out of the synagogue. And so after they show up, he finishes that last 10% and gets booted. And when he does, he says to those Jews there, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so he takes up teaching at somebody's house next door. But despite this harsh rejection from the Jews, despite being kicked out of the synagogue, the text also tells us that Crispus, who is the ruler of the synagogue, was actually converted. And many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized in verse 8. Now, if you could just sort of put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment, how do you think that you would feel in Corinth? You know, you've chosen to go to this really intimidating place, and you've had all of these conversations, and the reaction, honestly, is kind of a mixed bag, you know? Like, you've been opposed and reviled and tossed out of the synagogue, but the ruler of the synagogue and several others have been converted. So how would you feel? Well, I think that I might be afraid in a situation like that. I might be afraid of the persecution. You know, if they're willing to just drag me out of the synagogue, if they're willing to uh, be so emotionally responsive to the message and reject it like this, there's no telling what else they might do. I might be afraid of the rejection from people. I might be afraid that I wouldn't handle the situation correctly and I might mess everything up. And so the Lord appears to Paul and he says in verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see, what Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision to tell him was that he needed to make sure that he didn't let his fears master him. He needed to master his fears. He needed to keep speaking the word of the Lord and trusting that the word of the Lord would do what it was designed to do. You know, sometimes we have the idea that if the result is not what we wanted it to be, that maybe we've done something wrong. And in some cases, maybe we have. But we also need to remember that the word of the Lord is designed to create an emotional response in people. It's designed to reach people's hearts. And sometimes it's going to attract people and sometimes it's going to push them away. Sometimes it's going to cause people to love us and sometimes it's going to cause people to hate us. But our responsibility is to go on speaking and not to be silent. Paul needed to know that there were people out there who were hungry for it. And that if he would be faithful to God's message that God would be with him to protect him. And so, knowing all of that, verse 11 tells us that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is actually the second longest stay that Paul has anywhere. He stays in Corinth longer than anywhere else except for Ephesus. And so it shows us that despite his fears, he was encouraged by the Lord's admonition, and he realized 
that there was something more important than his, than his fears and than himself. It was his responsibility to bring the gospel to the people who were hungry for it. And so, Paul is content to face his fears in Corinth, and he actually ends up staying even longer than a year and six months. In verse 18, I'm sorry, uh, verse 12, it says, But when Paul was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, Paul stays in Corinth longer uh, than a year and six months. It's going to tell us in verse 18 that he stayed many days longer. But it wasn't without conflict. It wasn't without opposition. And here we see how the heat gets turned up over a period of time. And things seem to be going okay, but the Jews succeed in dragging Paul before the governor of the whole province. And the accusation is in verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. It's always interesting to me to read the accusations and the charges that are brought about Paul and the apostles. Because oftentimes there's some admission of their effectiveness in it all. Obviously Paul is not just you know, telling people to break the law. He's teaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew law. But the fact that he's dragged before the tribunal and being accused of persuading people, I, I almost imagine Paul like raising a finger and saying, you know, like, so you do admit that I am persuading people. It says something about him if they can say that he's turning the world upside down, that his teaching is permeating the city, he's being active, and the message is creating a response. And so the charge is laid out against Paul, and before he can defend himself, Gallio says, well, this doesn't really concern me. This seems like a religious thing. That's not my deal. You can handle that on your own. Thank you. Come again. And he sends them out. But in verse 17, here's their reaction to all of that. It says that they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, you might be a little bit confused because just up in verse 8, we read that Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. But it's not really good press for the ruler of the synagogue to become a Christian. So the implication is that Crispus left his post as ruler of the synagogue and Sosthenes replaced him. But what you see here is another demonstration of the illogical nature of rage. Why did they beat Sosthenes? They were mad at Paul. Why did they go grab the new ruler of the synagogue and beat him? Well, for the same reason that they dragged Jason before the authorities in chapter 17. When people get angry, they often get imprecise about where that anger is directed. What I see is people that are just upset. 
Sosthenes happens to be in a place to catch the brunt of their frustration. Now, it's important to remember some of these names, and it's interesting to compare them to the names that we see in 1 Corinthians. If you would, we can take a brief detour over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Obviously, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which we're reading about being established here in chapter 18. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at what Paul writes in verse 1 and 2. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then if you look down in verse 14, Paul talks about the people that he baptized in Corinth. And in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And so Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue who was converted. Sosthenes was his replacement. Maybe this is a different Sosthenes than the one that replaced him. I kind of like to think that Paul converted two different rulers of the synagogue in Corinth. That Sosthenes followed in Crispus's footsteps. But what we see is that this church is established in the midst of all of the conflict because Paul didn't let his fears convince him to stop. Now, again, you might think that this would be the straw that broke the camel's back, that after he's been dragged before the governor, that this would be when Paul would say, okay, fine, I'm out of here. But verse 18 is actually what tells us that Paul stayed many days longer. It goes on to say that he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So we don't know how much longer Paul stayed in Corinth, but we do know that when he left, that he went on to Syria with Priscilla and Aquila. And it tells us at Sincre. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. I'm not really sure what that refers to exactly. I think our best guess would be that this is a Nazarite vow. If you remember, there was a a special kind of vow that was outlined in the Old Testament, where somebody could voluntarily dedicate themselves to God for a period of time. And they would abstain from cutting their hair, and they would abstain from any product of the grape, and they would abstain from touching any dead bodies. And at the end of it, they would cut their hair. And so it seems like that is the kind of vow that Paul took. That does raise some questions, though, about what business Paul has keeping a Nazarite vow. You know, haven't we just established that you don't have to do Jewish stuff if you want to be a Christian? You know, you don't have to be circumcised. There's no greater burden than staying away from those things that were deemed sinful. 
And I think that maybe we could explain it in a couple of ways. Perhaps this is in the category of Paul being all things to all men. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul explains his reasoning about how when he's with different kinds of people, he tries to relate to them as much as he can. And perhaps this is an opportunity for him to do that. Or it might even be an example of Paul exercising his Christian liberties, like he talks about in Romans 14. Paul could never have told other Christians that they must keep a vow like this, but he was well within his rights to do it himself. But either way, we see Paul voluntarily observing a Jewish custom as a Christian. And then from Sincre, we see them go to Ephesus in verse 19. And it tells us that Paul only reasons with them in the synagogue for a short time. And he says, I will return to you if God wills. But what he does in Ephesus is he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. And that's really what will set up the next section that we see. Paul sails on to Caesarea. He goes up and greets the church in Jerusalem. And then he concludes his trip in Antioch. Antioch is always where the missionary journeys begin and end. And then verse 23 is actually the beginning of his third journey. It tells us after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so this is the beginning of the third journey, and we're going to see that pick up in chapter 19. But before we start the third journey, there's one last instance that Luke wants to draw our attentions to about something that happens in Ephesus. And this is something that happens with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. So we will look at verses 24 through 28. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what we've seen is that Paul has met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. He has left Corinth with them. He leaves them in Ephesus. He goes on and finishes his journey over here in Jerusalem and Antioch. But meanwhile... While Aquila and Priscilla are at Ephesus, this new guy shows up, and his name is Apollos. And I have to say, I really like Apollos. Uh, I always have kind of thought of him as being like somebody big and strong, but I think that's just because my mind goes to Apollo Creed. But he seems like a really big and strong kind of guy, you know? He's bold. He's energetic. He's zealous. He's fervent. And not only does he have a lot of good energy, but he's capable. He's well-studied. He knows the scriptures. And most importantly, we'll see that he's also humble. 
And so Apollos shows up in Ephesus, and he starts speaking, and he starts teaching, and it tells us that he is being accurate in the things that he's saying, although there's a missing portion of his understanding, because he knew only the baptism of John. And so when Priscilla and Aquila hear him, it tells us that they take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. This is such a good example for us, and really you can appreciate every single person in this story. You can appreciate Priscilla and Aquila's dedication to the truth. You know, it would have been really easy for them to be intimidated by Apollos. You know, here's this guy that shows up, and he's from Alexandria. Like, he's from the university town, you know. And he's read a lot of books, and he uses big words, and he's really persuasive, and maybe he's even charismatic. And he starts to say some things that don't sound quite right. It'd be kind of easy to just shrug it off and say, well, he probably knows better than we do. But Aquila and Priscilla go to him, and they talk to him. And another thing that you can appreciate about Aquila and Priscilla is they do this tactfully. You know, 100% of the time, people will react better to correction in private than in public. 99% of the time. I'll give you 1%. But most of the time, it's a very tactful decision to say, hey, let's talk about this privately. Let's have an opportunity to talk without all of the pressure of everybody watching and listening. So you appreciate their dedication to the truth. You appreciate their tactfulness. But you can also appreciate Apollos. You can appreciate his willingness to be approached and corrected. And that really demonstrates that he was sincere in his zeal for the Lord. You know, sometimes people are just really fervent, but they're not really fervent in spirit. They just like to be excited, and they're excited about a lot of things. But when they get corrected, they can be offended. And... The text gives us no indication of Apollos being offended in any way. He's approachable and he's sincere in his zeal for the Lord and for the truth. This is really what spiritual conversations ought to be like. When brethren love the Lord and love each other, they can give and receive correction with both respect and gentleness. And so, after this experience, Apollos goes on to Achaia. Um, I've got Paul sort of starting on his third journey from Antioch. I don't know exactly where he is at this time. But now, Apollos goes back over to Achaia, and he will spend some time in Corinth. And that explains why Apollos is mentioned so many times in First and Second Corinthians. Because after Paul left, Apollos came in behind him and spent some time working with the church. And so the chapter concludes in verse 28, telling us how he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Reminds us of what we noticed about Paul earlier as well, that when Paul interacted with the crowds, that he was showing them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So, With chapter 18 being in our minds, let's see if we can draw some conclusions. Number one, the best response to our fears is often 
to simply stop thinking about ourselves. I will admit that I take some encouragement from the implication that the Apostle Paul was afraid in Corinth. You know, sometimes we read about Paul and we read about these stories in the Bible and we start to think about men like Paul being superhuman and these stories sort of being like legendary tales. But Paul was a man just like us. Paul had fears just like us. Paul had a time when Jesus had to come to him in a dream and say, stop being afraid. I find that encouraging. But how do you react when you're afraid? When you're afraid of what others will think about your faith. When you're afraid about what others, how others will react to uh, what you believe. When you're afraid of being rejected or being laughed at. Those are the times that we tend to get the most quiet, aren't they? When we get afraid, that's when we tend to just stop speaking. But notice what Jesus says to Paul. In verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now notice that Jesus gives Paul both a negative command and a positive command. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. But there's also a motivation that he tells him in verse 10. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I'll admit it would be nice if Jesus could tell us from time to time, hey, nothing bad's going to happen to you. Nobody's going to hurt you. We don't have exactly that same kind of promise that Paul had, but do you see the motivation that Jesus wants Paul to think about? He says, I have many people in this city. There are people all around you who are searching for the truth, who will listen, who will receive it, who will obey it, if you will let them hear it. The solution to Paul's fear was to stop thinking about himself and to start thinking about them. You think that would help us have more courage? If we thought about the opportunities that the Lord has blessed us with, if we thought about the opportunities that he has entrusted us with, the people that we brush shoulders with, the people that we know in our families or in our workplace or in our social circles, it may very well be that the Lord has many in this city who are his people. Many at your office. Many at your baseball practices and things like that. And when we let our fears control us, what are we doing? We're really thinking more about ourselves than we are about them. I'll remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 26, Jesus said, So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him 
who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus wants us to know that the stakes could not be higher. And that if we have heard truth from him, that we ought to be moved to proclaim it openly. A second conclusion that I see from Acts 18 is that it's wise for us to be intentional about where we spend our time. One thing I noticed as I was reading this chapter this week is that this is one of the first times where Paul actually has a large degree of control about how long he stays places. Most of the places that we've seen him go so far have been places where that decision has been made for him. He's been run out of town or ushered out of town by the brethren who were concerned about his safety. But in these places, you might notice how Paul is able to intentionally decide how long to stay in one place before moving on to the next. In verse 1, he decides to leave Athens and go to Corinth. In verse 11, it tells us he stayed a year and six months there. In verse 18, it says that he stayed many days longer before taking leave of the brothers and setting sail. And then in verse 20, it tells us that when they asked for him to stay longer in Ephesus, he declined. That was actually an opportunity where people were asking him to stay and work with them. But Paul had another decision that he needed to make. What I take from all of this is that Paul was not one to float aimlessly. He was constantly aware that his decision to be somewhere came at the expense of being everywhere else. You can only be at one place at a time. And I'm not saying that we can all make decisions exactly like Paul did. Paul was chosen to be an apostle. None of us have been. He didn't have a family to take care of. He had some unique circumstances. But I do think that we can learn from his mentality to be intentional about where we spend our time. We can redeem the time or make the best use of the time, like Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.16. We can be intentional about where we spend our resources or our energy. We can make deliberate choices about what we do with the free time that we have, how much of a priority that we make Bible study and prayer and meditation. How long to spend working with somebody before we move on to somebody else? And like Paul, we may even make deliberate choices about where we live, how long we stay, and when we leave. Not for our own comfort, but for the sake of the gospel. But the point is that our time is limited. Time is a limited resource for every one of us. Let's not waste it. Let's use it intentionally. And then the third conclusion is that people who are fervent in spirit will demonstrate both boldness and humility. And I see this demonstrated so beautifully in Apollos here. Sometimes we think about boldness and humility kind of being like opposite ends of the spectrum. And we see how they work closely together in the example of Apollos. He was smart, he was eloquent, he was competent in the scriptures, he spoke boldly, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. But when Priscilla and Aquila approached him with a correction, he was receptive to it. 
He didn't scoff at them. He didn't say, who are you to correct me? Don't you know who I am? He didn't get angry with them. But he genuinely listened to what they had to say. And when he realized that they were right, he accepted it. I imagine that Apollos was a lot like the Bereans were. Remember in Acts 17 and verse 11, it tells us that the Bereans were noble-minded, that they received the word eagerly, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things that they were taught were so. Apollos listened to what Priscilla and Aquila had to say. I imagine he examined the scriptures, and when he realized they were correct, he, he modified what he was believing and saying. And so boldness and humility are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the people who are the most humble will also be the most bold because they won't be hindered by their concern for themselves. And so here's the last question for tonight. If you want to know how fervent in spirit you are, it's actually two questions you can ask yourself. Number one, How much do you talk about spiritual things? And number two, how do you react when others talk to you about spiritual things? The truth is, you will talk about whatever it is you're fervent about. The word zeal comes from a word in Greek that means to boil. And so somebody who is zealous or fervent will just sort of be overflowing with energy about whatever the thing is that they're excited about. And so if you're fervent about sports, you're going to find ways to talk about sports. And when somebody else talks about sports, your eyes light up and you have that conversation. If you're fervent about politics, you'll talk about politics and listen to others talk about politics. But if you're fervent in spirit your conversations will often revolve around spiritual things. You will learn to speak boldly and listen sincerely. And where both of these qualities come together, boldness and humility, is in a deep love and trust of the truth. That when we know what God has said, when we know what the truth is, we can be bold in proclaiming it because it's not just our opinion, it's the word of the Lord. And when other people come to us and say, here's what the word of the Lord says, even if it is offensive to us, even if it contradicts what we have previously thought, even if it demands a change, we'll be humble enough to receive it. Because we care more about the will of God than we do about our own interests. And so boldness and humility come together in somebody who's fervent in spirit, somebody who loves the Lord and loves the truth. And so that's the lesson for this afternoon. I hope that it has been encouraging to you as we've seen Paul conclude his second journey here in chapter 18. And we'll look forward to seeing things continue in chapter 19. But there might be somebody here this afternoon who needs to make your life right with God. And I hope that as we go through the book of Acts that you see how over and over again the gospel separates people. There are some people who just don't care enough to really even give it a second thought. There are other people who are so opposed to it and upset about it that they walk away. But then there are others who are pricked in their hearts, who realize that it is the answer to all of the questions that they've always been asking. That there is hope, there is joy, there is satisfaction in what God has made available through his Son.
And if that's you this afternoon, you have the opportunity to respond. If you know what you need to do, and we can help you in some way, we want to invite you to come to the front while we stand together and sing.